You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome back to Top Traders Unplugged, where each week we take the pulse of the markets from the perspective of a rules-based investor. It's a slightly different Systematic Investor episode this week, as Niels is away traveling. So it's me, Alan Dunn, sitting in for Niels while he is away for the next few weeks. And today I'm joined by Andrew. Andrew, great to see you. How is all on your side? Everything's great over here. I, I, I was thinking as you were saying that I wanted to say something like I'm the least systematic of the people who show up on the show. So, um, but uh, no, thank you guys for having me back. It's great to be here. Good stuff. Well, obviously, it's it's my first time in this job, so hopefully you'll be able to, to help guide me through um, as we progress. Um, so it will be very, very casual, I'm sure. So before we get get started, I know we have a, a, a number of uh, very interesting topics. Um, just in terms of markets and uh, managed futures and trend following, it's very early in the month as it stands. So as of the 4th of October, SOCGEN CTA up 50 basis points, SOCGEN trend up 84 basis points and the SOCGEN uh, Short-Term Traders Index up 1.2%. So uh, a positive, but but uh, probably too early in the month to, to draw any major um, inferences. From your perspective, Andrew, what's been on your radar over the last while since you were last on? Well, God, I, I mean, it, you know, it, it it's a recurring theme, but I, I just got back from a, a uh, roadshow to Europe, and so I had the opportunity to spend a lot of time with, with investors in Germany and, and the UK. And I always spend a lot of time with investors here. And I mean, the thing to me that is so fascinating right now is that the evidence is building up that 60-40 portfolios are broken. And, you know, we just ran some numbers this morning where basically, you know, if you if you go from the kind of, you know, the sweet spot of the Fed put era in the 2010s, the, a 60-40 portfolio in the U.S. had a standard deviation of around 6%. It's 12 now, right? I mean, I mean, 12 so, you know, think about this from a wealth manager's perspective. Every single one of your clients thinks they're on this slow moving train and they're on some crazy roller coaster. I mean, 12 for this is like the depths of the great financial crisis. Now, we haven't seen the 40% drawdown in equities that we saw back then. But, but, and I think the thing that's incredible to me about it is that kind of no one's really talking about it because they don't have a plan as to what to do. You know, what do you do? You've just, you're, you've, just come to the realization that your conservative balance portfolio looks more like an aggressive growth portfolio. What do you do? How do you go to your clients and explain that? And what would you do? And and so, you know, we'll talk about it, but I think the the obvious answer is people need things that don't go up and down with stocks and bonds. And because um, that's what's driving it is basically the correlation structure has, cha- has flipped overnight. And it could be this way for 10 or 20 years. So... Yeah, interesting. I mean, uh, I was talking to Niels about this a couple of months back and making the point that Last year, how many articles did we see about the end of 6040? But it did kind of dry up a little bit, you know, as equities rebounded and bonds did okay in the first six months of the year. But as you say, in, in more recently, uh, the correlation has, has flipped to positive. And obviously, bonds has definitely been the big focus in markets this week. You know, we had, uh, you know, US uh, 10-year yields touching up against 5% and uh, Ray Dalio uh, saying that the US may face a debt crisis. And... Um, during the week, I actually had the uh, pleasure of uh, interviewing Ed Yardeni, um, and he uh, it's going to be out as a global macro episode in the next fall. Ed's actually the guy who coined the phrase uh, bond 
Delante. So uh, it was very timely to, to get Ed's uh, thoughts on markets. But it is, as you say, this is the challenge from an asset allocation perspective, this positive correlation between bonds and equities. And very interesting. I mean, uh, a lot of commentators pointed to the magnitude of the declines now for the likes of TLT and, and all of those long duration. Well, you, said, but, you know, you think about, it, I mean, the thing, thing is that, you know, it reflects the historical nature of how a lot of the modern wealth management business, what it really came into existence. It came into existence in the past 30 years. And, and during that period of time, in fact, stocks and bonds did a really good job of hedging each other. Um, but it's, but you can actually see it becoming less over time. Like in the, during the dot-com crisis, equities get slaughtered, but you know, we went into that with bond rates quite high. And so with Fed cutting and everything else, bonds actually went up a lot, right? So it really worked. The GFC, not so much. You know, GFC bonds, the, the Bloomberg ag was flattish. So great, you weren't down 40% like you were with your equity portfolio, but it had already lost a bit of the bang for the, you know, bang for the buck from a diversification perspective. And then you get rolled out to 2022 and it's, it's in the other direction. And I think part of the reason people are having trouble facing into it is, is, is what I said, which is that they don't really have a game plan. It's, it's better for them to hope. Right. And, and I think, I think this whole year from a macro perspective has been to just hold on and hope with a white knuckle grip that we go back to the 2010s because then everything was working the way it was supposed to. And so, you know, we start with taper and then the, the data doesn't cooperate. And then we go to, you know, from t- then, then we go to sticky and then from sticky, we go to, you know, the mini banking crisis and then, but, and people just jumped on it. They were like, okay, this proves that, you know, rates are going right back down and we're going to have a recession by June and it's finally hitting us. And then since then, it's just been this, you know, frustrating realization for people that, you know, maybe the world really has changed and, and, and people need a new toolkit. And hence, that's why I'm, you know, having fun carrying around my portable soapbox and, and loudspeaker. Good stuff. Well, before we get into um, the, the meat of the, the topics that you had brought, I mean, I, I had seen a, a, an article on uh, Morningstar, which kind of relates to what we're talking about now. So maybe it's a good, good opportunity to, to, to talk about it. The article is called Market Wizards Wave Their Magic Wands, but Investors Miss the Magic. And it's all about, um, as you say, I, I guess a growing appetite for, for, for trend following and managed futures but does highlight some of the challenges investors have in terms of trying, you know, uh, well, I say timing, but but the idea should be not to time it, but the, the fact that investors do tr- try to time allocations to all strategies and assets, um, but but they seem to be particularly poor at timing allocations to to trend following. Your fund gets a mention within there as uh, as, as evidence of, of yeah. the growing <laughs> <Yeah>, appetite. <laughs> or evidence of people uh, filing in near the top. Well, um, Sam, what was your perspective on it? So first, all, I think. Look, I think I think Morningstar occasionally writes great research pieces, and this is one of them. Morningstar is, is are the best guys in the business at looking at this investor psychology issue and what it means for actual realized returns. They have this uh, report they do every year that basically talks about it. And sort of interestingly, the area where it's always the worst is in anything that looks like a hedge fund, um, because because the thing to understand about the broad hedge fund industry. Um, is that these are very, very profitable products when you compare it to selling a long-only you know, value factor XYZ product. You can charge a lot more for these things. So if you can charge a lot more, you can pay your salespeople a lot more. And when you have one of these things that's doing well, you know, you tend it tends to get an additional turbo charge on the distribution side. And and so people go out and 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 the mythology of it, and, it's, and it, it taps into, I mean, so it's so ironic to me for something like trend following where you're supposed to do things that remove you from heuristic biases and other things, but a lot of the marketing, the business is built 
to tap into that to the extent possible. Uh, so look, I mean, credit to them for writing it. I think the narrative around managed futures has gone through a couple of shifts. Um, in 2020, the narrative was it was dead. It was, it had been armed, whatever the trend opportunity was, like Fama's definition of value stocks, like the small cap premium, all the things. It's it was it was an intellectual curiosity, but by the time people really got interested in it, it was gone. Um, and then 2021 and 2022, uh, and, and, and remember back then, people were saying, oh, the only way managed futures funds make money is by being long treasuries, basically. And and all they've been doing is riding this you know downward drift in rates over the period of time. And I wrote a little paper back then basically saying that makes absolutely no sense, right? These guys are completely in a different direction. If it goes in the other direction, it, it's they'll, they'll benefit from it. So, so the first thing that happened was a breakdown of the narrative that the space was dead. But a legacy of it was to try to find the guy who's going to do much better than everybody else. And the way people do that, because manager selection is a painfully efficient process. If you and I look at the same fund, other than staring you know, it, it, into the white of the guy's eyes and trying to figure out whether he's doing a good job and working hard, et cetera, we don't really have a lot of competitive advantage in terms of information. And so like, he doesn't secretly tell us that he's got some great model that he hasn't told any of the other investors. So you ended up basically with people buying back into the space and buying with this legacy thing of we're going to time it. You know, we're going to find the guy who only goes up other stuff. That's breaking down. I got to tell you in my, in my European trip just now, and also in terms of dealing with guys in the U S if you have a statistical bone in your body, this is a strategic allocation, particularly in this world today. The problem is that often people with statistical bones in their body are talking to people who don't have statistical bones in the body, in their body. <laughs> and, and, and that's the next step. That's the next hurdle. But I think I think I think Morningstar hit on something. But I think we'll look back on this in five years and think they were absolutely right in identifying an issue. But people are smart and they figured it out and they learned. Yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting. I mean, some of the the, the, the magnitudes of the numbers are very stark that they quote. I mean, they they, they so basically the idea of this study is to show what the annualized returns for each of the, the various funds have been, but then to use dollar weighting um, uh, calculations to, to, to calculate what investors have realized. And, uh, you know, the, the, the gap for, for AQRs, high vol is, is, is 9%. So, so that the, the total return over three years has been 14%, but investors have realized just over 6%. And it, it goes along the same for, same for PIMCO, same for, for, for all of, well, I think there's one or two where actually investors did better, but it's interesting that you put some of the blame on, on the uh, managers themselves and their marketing machines. Well, so I mean, I, I'm going to, I'm going to leap to AQR's defense, which ends, which may, may cause some of your, um, you know, the listeners to faint, but, but look, I think, I think AQR has been a very, very, very positive force in this industry. Um, and it goes back to 2010 when they launched an e so before 2010, when they launched AQMAX in the U S um, the, the typical model of most hedge funds worth their salt in this space didn't want to dirty their hands by dealing with the U.S. retail world. So there were firms out there like Equinox, Locor, um, Salient, and others that basically said, we'll do the dirty work. We'll go around and talk to these you know, RAA riffraff that you don't want to deal with. You, want to, you, you can still have fun with your pension plans and your consultants. And so they put 100 basis point fees on, and then they would either set up swaps or other things to pay people their full fees. And the argument was, we'll essentially we'll be your distribution. We'll, we'll, we'll find you other sources of capital, but you're going to, you're going to make just as much as you would otherwise make. Um, and so maybe we'll get you $200 million, but it'll be in $5,000 increments, but that's our job. Um, 
So AQR came along and they kind of dropped a bomb in this business model. So what you had is a whole series of funds that had three to 400 basis point expense ratios when you work through it. And, and that's what caused Bloomberg, things like that caused Bloomberg in 2013 to put out this cover article that says, you know, how investors lose 89% of every dollar that's made in, 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 in futures funds. Um, and it was, you know, scathing. And from what I understand anecdotally is the SEC kind of hit the ceiling and things quietly changed after that. Um, but, but AQR came out with an institutional quality product that they ran. And, and for what I understand initially is that they, they said, look, what, we don't have the time and resources and we don't need to deal with guys who can put a million dollars into this. So we'll do it $5 million minimum, et cetera. But they came with an institutional quality product in a mutual fund. And the, what, what was not AQR's fault was that people looking at it said, well, okay, clearly I want exposure to this space. Clearly AQR are just frigging, you know, geniuses are falling out of the windows of that place. And so I'm just going to, I'm going to say, I want this to be an 8% allocation of my portfolio. I'm going to give it all to AQR. And, and if AQR had just matched what the SOC Gen CTA index had done over the next five years, no one would be having a discussion, but the, but the, but the, but it got to $14 billion in assets. It was half of the U.S. mutual fund space. So imagine, imagine again, if we said, okay, in the $3 trillion hedge fund industry, one guy has a billion, a, a trillion and a half of it, right? I mean, it's, it's, so then AQR, and as everybody does in the space, went through a frustrating period of underperformance. And, and what happens is the allocators at that point, the first thing they have to do is they hold on and they say, don't worry, it's going to rebound because they don't want to say that maybe they were over-concentrated, et cetera. And then over time, as the kind of long winter went on, you start to see them shooting it and shooting it more and more. So AUMs go down 90, 90%, 95% or something. And then of course, because this business is designed to torture fund allocators, they come roaring back and they've had incredible numbers since that, since that. So, so the, the, the Morningstar stats while instructive, um, I think are, first of all, it's not AQR's fault if people make you the default allocation, um, and that. I think the fact that they brought that product to market was a hugely positive impact on, 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 on the business. And third, people have learned from it. I just, I don't talk to that many guys who say, you know, it was AQR and I loved AQR back then, but I'm going to put it all with XYZ fund today. Everyone thinks about diversification. So people, so people learn from it. But again, this is, you know, these are all the positive stumbling steps forward in this business where it goes from being this kind of cottage industry to just becoming a mainstream asset class that people can decide how they want to access. Good stuff. Well, as you say, the upshot of it all is to encourage people to maintain nanotutures and trend following as core allocations, core strategic allocations, and, and not, not time it. Interestingly, um, it's that while you're talking around AQR's entrance into the mutual fund space is possibly a good segue into the first topic that you brought along today um, and that's around commoditization and you say the CTA business has been on a long and bumpy road towards commoditization so what do you mean by that what what, what's, uh, what do you think in, in in terms of commoditization in managed features and trend following sure I mean, let, I mean let, let's talk about it more broadly in the hedge fund industry okay so I, I go into the hedge fund industry in 1994 right stuff that was easy that's easy to do today that people don't think about was really hard back then so I'm, go I'm going and I'm trying to buy bank loans because there were bank loans. Okay. You had to hire lawyers to negotiate agreements on a one-off basis. There were guys who specialized in going out and talking to banks and you would have these kind of one-page write-ups. Super inefficient market. 
um, I did some of the first secondary purchases of limited partnership interests in private equity funds. That's a huge, you know, $100 billion plus business today. Back then, I was going door to door to Japanese financial institutions who had these holdings that they invested in the 1980s, had no idea what was in it or whatever, have to do all the valuation work, do all the documentation, et cetera. So you could buy stuff at incredibly cheap prices by virtue of these deep structural inefficiencies in the market. You know, shorting was complicated. So my exposure to the managed future space was actually, or not to, to, sorry, the broader commodity space was back in the early 2000s when I started a fundamentally driven commodity business uh, that became something called Pinnacle Asset Management. And what struck me about the space was that, you know, I knew about futures contracts. There's sort of obvious things that were out there, but I never, I never really thought about futures contracts. And in the late 1990s, one of the things that caused the, um, the commodity markets to take off in the 2000s was the fact that some academics actually did the work to try to come up with the returns of various commodities, including roles, right? You don't have to think about this in equities. You know, you, you buy the equities, you add back in your, the dividends that you get over, over, over time. It's not hard math, but, but somebody actually had to do the work of coming up with return streams. So that, and the conclusion that they came to was this is as good as equities with no correlation. And so, so that was mana for asset allocators in the 2000s. And then you had, you know, the brick boom, et cetera. So, so, so the point is that the arc of this business is always toward people finding something that they can do that is esoteric. And then more and more people learn about it. The more people make on it, more people invest in it, et cetera. So to me, I look at managed futures and I wasn't in, obviously in this space back in the early 1990s, but I do remember what computers were like. I do remember what access to information was like. And I can tell you, there were not a lot of people in my class at Harvard Business School who were thinking about, you know, going and firing up their, you know, IBM 486 laptop or whatever the hell they were using at the time, and then try to pull down futures data on and and then even understanding kind of what trends were. So so I think there's been and you know, consequently the people who did do it made absolute fortunes. You know, I mean, John Henry owns multiple sports teams because he was really early into doing this stuff. I mean, the, so the early generations guys got it. But now what's happened? You know, now you go onto Twitter and there are really smart guys who aren't even in this business who run their own trend following models and debate with great intensity as to, you know, whether these are the right parameters to set, the right window lengths and everything else. It's the same thing with GameStop. You know, I mean, who knew about... Uh, you know, delta hedging of options in the early 1990s, and you've got people doing it on Reddit. So, so you know, I think what's happened with 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 managed futures and CTAs in general is there's been this long path of dissemination of the information. You know, not everybody who's amazing at doing this at Milburn stays at Milburn. People leave and they start their own firms, and people leave Man HL and they start their own firms, and people who invest in it learn about it. So, so, so it's been this long path, and. That's a natural and very, very, very positive development for allocators, because the more we under, the more allocators understand this about the space, the more they they can then think about how how and why it fits in their portfolio. And just the last before I pause, the last thing I would say about it is that people associate commoditization with something negative, right? And so I think by two thousand, if you'd said, "I think this space has been through a thirty year path of commoditization," they would say, "Ah, and that's my reason for not investing it." But, but nobody says, you know what, cars have become commoditized. I'm not going to buy a car. I'm going back to bicycles. You know, like it's, I'm going to go back, go, go, go up on my horse. What 21 and 22 showed was that even with compression of fees, dissemination of information, et cetera, 
the space is still structurally, I think, it's structurally the most valuable asset allocation you can put in a portfolio of stocks and bonds. And, and all commoditization does is put more wind in your sails because it means that, you know, pricing comes down, access, access improves, et cetera. I think it's interesting. I mean, the road, the, uh, sorry, the, the, the word commoditization can be a bit divisive, I think, particularly within the industry. Um, and I mean, from, from a couple of perspectives, one is, it, you know, managers will say, well, no, it's more complicated than that. And equally, I mean, it, back in the kind of the, the winter for trend following, et cetera, and there was this view, well, it's all the same, it's all commoditized. You know, you know we could, managers will continue to make the point, which I think is valid, that it's not all the same, even though maybe it has got a bit easier to do it. I mean, it, you have to make all of those decisions in terms of what vol to run at, how to allocate your risk, whether to vol size or not, whether to vol adjust, you know, which markets to trade, all of this stuff. So, so is, is commoditized, I mean, is commoditization the, the, the right word? I'm wondering if from this perspective of, it doesn't mean that there's one benchmark yet in terms of this is the, the way to do it. There's still lots of varieties of, of, of trends. Um, oh, but, sure. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I think, I mean, look, I mean, you know, equity investing has become commoditized. Doesn't make equity investing. Does, and, 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 but, you know, but what, what it does is it, it gives you a framework for thinking about, do I want the big easy thing? Like, like what, you know, what, what is commoditization supposed to mean? It's supposed to mean, first of all, I don't have to think that hard to get exposure to it. Right. I, I guess, I mean, I, to use the equity example, I've thought about this before. I mean, you could run a value equity strategy of, say, long the low PE stocks and short the high PE stocks. Or something. And that would be, as can I just say, a simple, uh, long, short uh, value equity strategy, which would be easy to do now. Um, you know, probably easier than it was to do 20 years ago. Doesn't mean that that's the best way to to express um, an equity value strategy. I think that's the point. No, no. I mean, and, and so, right. So that's, I mean, and that's why we have massive dispersion. And right. So, so, so I think, look, I think there's a lot of disagreement about what people even mean. So, you know, I've talked about this a lot that it's semantically, it's a very strange space, right? So we, we start with CTAs, which is a regulatory term, you know, like nobody says, you know, uh, I'm going to set up a business investing in interval funds, or, I mean, it's like, it's, it's, so that's weird. Then it becomes managed futures, which is sort of a repelling expression, right? It just, it's futures contracts scare people. They associate with them, them with infinite losses. Managed is just sort of a cold term. And then, and then, you know, in the mid two thousands where, and this was a big, we weren't really involved in at this point, but I, I wrote a bit on it was this idea of, of, well, we can, it's really the big driver of managed futures as a broader category is trend. And and banks started to come out and saying, it's not that hard, right? I mean, to do a basic trend model, you do a, you know, whatever your crossover model is, you pick it, et cetera. Now, when we looked at it, we said, actually, it's a lot harder than that. Because, because people, first of all, when everybody, if, if you take 10 quants and you ask them to build a crossover model today, they are going to be within spitting distance of the SockGen CTA trend index. The moment they go live, it's going to be like you, you know, I don't, I don't know, you know, like, like dropped a firecracker in the middle of a room full of cats, right? All of their, all their products are going to go in different directions because of the number of parameter specifications you have to make. And so, so one of the ironies of, or one of the, the complexities of this space is, is to get agreement on what we really mean by core underlying trend, because, because it, it's simple to say, oh, well, trend is the big driver. But you do fifty versus hundred versus two fifty by twenty, and you're in completely different in, in a completely different ballpark. 
So the tautology of it is that there are a lot of smart people doing it on a day-to-day basis. And so again, our, our, our view is that there is actually no pure, easily identifiable underlying definition of trend that you can do. Because then, then what you would do is say, okay, no, the real driver is a 250 over 20 um, moving average. And therefore, that's the simple one. When we've looked at it, we've said, okay, but guys are smart in this space. It's working better at other times. It's not working at other times. They do, as you say, all, all these all these various things. So so part of, part of the complexity, which I don't think will ever be solved, is there, there won't ever be a one-line formula that says this is trend. But what I would say, having come from other parts of this business, is that's always true. Right. So the S&P 500 is everyone's blanket definition of equities. It's not a great definition of equities because of its market cap weighting, because of its US bias, et cetera. But what it does is it's the intellectual crutch for people to say equities. And it's the intellectual crutch for people to say, how would have I done over the past 50 years? And that's that's where that's where the hedge fund indices come in. Yeah, no, fair enough. So, I mean, is that where you see I mean, is that does that mean the stock chain trend index? Is that what people will refer to as trend over time, or or how do you see that evolving? I I think so. Look, and if and if you look at you know when we started in 2016, there was there was trend was not cool. 2015 2016 we started. Trend was not cool, right? Non trend was was other things other than trend were cool to die. Um, and you know we saw this sort of inflection point in March of 2020 when trend did better, and then trend has done better since then. So if you look at the guys who've been successful in, and who've been raising assets is they rhyme a lot more closely to they, this, this clustering of people who do trend. In other words, within the SockGen CTA trend sub-index, people look a lot more alike than on the other half, on the other, on the other side of it. And so, so what there is, is there's creeping consensus as to the things that tend to work over time better why they tend to work over time better. And so, so particularly for the bigger guys, at least I think, right, when if everyone agrees that we're all kind of in the same, roughly the same parameters in terms of how you do it, um, like in other words, you're not, you're not, I don't think you're going to find a guy in there who's like, I'm doing five day trend, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean it's, it's, you know, the, the debate is when people say like, you know, well, are you picking a medium term trend or a long term trend? First of all, nobody has a precise definition of it down to a number of days, but but there's this kind of expectation that there is that that's probably where the core underlying driver is, but but within that again because of the complexity of it. In the same way, I mean, back to your example about equity long. I mean, about doing like, you know, if you say even when you say value, in 1994, nine guys out of ten who were somewhat academically inclined would have defined value as low price to book versus high price to book. Zero guys will tell you that's value today. They'll tell you it's cash flow, it's price to revenue, it's 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 volatile what what they, everyone the people keep changing their definitions over time but but the, the the reason this is really important is because there's never a perfect definition of any asset class but what you need is a broad agreement that something is sufficiently representative of it that you can get comfortable with the predictability of it given certain risk return criteria over the coming 10 years and so part of the issue with single manager risk and the Morningstar study where we started this is a lot of the capital in this business is designed as, you know, is, is tremendously confident of what's going to happen over the next 10 years. They have no idea what's going to happen over the next six months, but they feel very confident telling you what the relationship is going to be between the S&P 500 and 
non-US equities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They've got all that mapped out. Then it doesn't mean they're accurate doing it, but it's, it's a time frame what they're, what they're talking about. So when you go to a strategy like this, they want to know that what they're investing in is going to have some predictable relationship to those assets. And, and, and the reason is because they have to, right? It's, it's, it's how their business is. Like if you're a fund selector, you can't come to the conclusion that there are no funds you want to buy, right? If you're building model portfolios, you have to come up with the best way that you can to think about how to construct a high risk reward, high, high, high return relative to risk portfolio for your clients. And, and in order to do that, we'll, we'll always do these, do these heuristic biases and I mean, heuristic short shortcuts to get to it. So I, I just think, I think the managed future space is heading in that direction. So for me, commoditization is, I, and I say, it, I know I recognize it's an inflammatory term, but it's, it's, it's really about reaching some sort of a consensus as to what we like about the space and what we find predictable. No, I hear what you're saying. And, and, and I mean, I think I, I, I recognize and agree with the broad thrust of what's, you know, how that is evolving in, in the marketplace. I guess the other point you might say in terms of the commoditization point is, a lot of the value maybe a lot of managers add is not is in knowing how to 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 run and continue to run a trend program like so as you say it's easy to maybe easier at least to to mechanically set it up but for a, maybe a naive investor might be tempted to reoptimize the parameters every year whereas a more uh, sophisticated trend follower knows not to do that and knows more about what, what are the thresholds in terms of statistical evidence to, to, to make the changes, et cetera? Oh, oh by, by the way, I don't by any means mean that that, that if, if the information becomes more broadly disseminated, people know how to use it well. I mean, no, no I mean, that's, that's no, I mean, it's e- even brilliant quants, you know, who've designed trend following models that they thought were simple have hit the windshield sooner than you could possibly imagine. So I'm not at all suggesting that people can't and won't make mistakes, that there won't be a lot of dispersion. Look, it, Two different value guys can look completely different, right? It just—it's just the nature of specifying parameters. You can end up, end up with very, very, very different results. No, fair enough. But it is certainly true that we have seen this evolution of the industry. From you know, you talk about maybe if you went back to twenty years ago, or even back to twenty ten. You know, most um, most managers had their kind of flagship program, and then we had, as you say, the entrance of AQR and the growth of the mutual fund space. And then managers maybe having two products, they might have a, um, a, a kind of a, a management fee only product or, or program, and 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 maybe the flagship. And now we've seen a further evolution of the space, obviously with the growth of ETFs. So you can have, you know, a manager with a with a flagship and a mutual fund and an ETF. And, and I think Man AHL have just launched a um, a, a trend following ETF to complement their mutual fund and their their other offerings. So I mean, how do you see? You know, how do you see that evolving? What's the implications for for investors and allocators? Do you think? Sure. Well, well first of all, I, hey, uh, American Beacon Man HL, welcome to the sandbox. Uh, we are we are absolutely thrilled to have you uh, have you in it because the challenge, you know, we're on the cusp of a billion dollars again. We kind of we're, we've got a billion two. We 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 went down and now we're we're, we're back up. But you know, the challenge is I mean, so we're between one and two basis points of uh, of the ETF world. I mean, this is a greenfield opportunity. You know, Alpha Simplex, if you're listening, welcome. You know, please join us. <laughs> like the job here is to convince those trillions upon trillions of dollars uh, of assets um, as, as to how valuable this is. Um, you know, the, the interesting people have often asked us why more people don't do what we do. And, and usually the answer is that they, a, a, a competitive dynamics issue called commitment. 
And the guy who wrote the book on it wrote it in the, uh, I want to say the mid-1980s. Uh, he was a professor at Harvard Business School in Nepal, Kemawat. And, and what he basically said was, you know, you do a decision, a, 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 you make a decision today and it has all sorts of implications over time. And so it's very, very hard to, un you can't easily unwind decisions when, once you make them. And so I look, I think a lot of people have looked at the same trends or issues that I'm talking about, you know, who come from a world of one and a half and 20 or whatever it is in, in, in their flagship funds. And they can see opportunities, but if they do something that's too close to their existing products, they fear cannibalization, right? And so, so hats off to Man AHL and to American Beacon, uh, you know, first for coming into the, in, in with a mutual fund that's, I, you know, I think they're 150 or 170 basis points or something, but a great mutual fund, right? A, a, a world-class product that people can buy in small increments. And now they're coming into the ETF world and the challenge that they're going to face you would think, okay, the theoretical challenge they're going to face is, as I understand their business, they've got four types of products. You've got the evolution product at the top, which last time I looked, the numbers were incredible. You'd pay anything to be in it. It was capacity constrained, all sorts of other things. You know, then you had the core hedge fund product. Then you had the mutual fund, which is a simpler version, essentially a more constrained version of that. And then you had the ETFs. So the very, very best thing for Man AHL is five years from now, is the most expensive product net of fees, does better than the second most expensive product, does better than the third most expensive product. And so the fear that a lot of people have on cannibalization, I'm going to come back to why I think it's completely overstated, is that you're going to have investors who are going to say, I'm pulling money out of the diversified fund to go into the ETF, and that's going to be net negative for, for, for man HL from a, um, from a revenue perspective. I think 95 times out of 100, that won't happen. Um, because... People invest in funds that they like for various, very different reasons. They're, the people who invest, and even coming back from Europe, right? When I talk to people who they view usage funds, and Van has a great usage fund that certainly hasn't canceled a billion dollars, something certainly hasn't cannibalized the rest of their business. But but they view usage funds as inferior, watered down. They, if they can, on behalf of their clients, they're going to go into the hedge fund because it's better for them. It's not, they're not paying the fees. Their clients are paying the fees, but it's more prestigious for them to go to the hedge fund. I've met with allocators who bought into Man AHL 15 years ago. They're still talking about it today as, as, as evidence of their intelligence and sophistication. So the ETF world versus the mutual fund, there are always going to be these bifurcations. Now, there are going to be a lot of people out there who run ETF-based model portfolios. They can't buy the mutual fund to begin with. And they're going to look at this and say, my God, we have one of, you know, probably arguably the best player in the world, you know, among the best handful of best players in the world who are doing this is now, now offering it an ETF. Now, what will be fun to see is from a product construction perspective is how far they felt they needed to push it away from higher margin products because it's 95 basis points, which is not cheap in ETF land, but it's, it's obviously a lot less. So out of the gate, this thing flew up. <laughs> <laughs> in month one, it was up between like eight and nine percent. Everybody did well. Man's mutual fund goes up half that. Then we have a couple of bad days. It comes right back down. And I think it's like a, I think you mentioned it was a 15 vol. So the really interesting thing is from a product construction perspective, are they trying to give you the mutual fund, but an ETF? Or is their commercial incentive to keep it sufficiently far apart? That that people will view them as sort of distinct products, in which so I, I don't know, like, but I'm I, 
I'm sort of I'm sort of dying to watch how this plays out. Yeah, well, it seems to me obviously it's just it's a higher vol. Um, I, I mean, obviously the, the the clear line of demarcation is in terms of the number of markets. So I, I don't have the data for for their products to hand, but I I imagine their mutual fund trades sixty to one hundred markets, and and this is trading I think maybe twenty, and then obviously as you say, flagship and evolution, you're into alternative markets. So. Um, but, but but again, but I mean, look, I mean, this is and this goes back to stuff that we've done, right? Like, how awkward is it going to be if thirty does better than seventy, right? Or thirty does better than hundred, right? I mean, how how is because again, we've looked at that issue. So so where the industry should go, right, is that I mean, if there was sort of rational allocators and rational business, you would have we would say, all right, we're not going to pay you much for the thirty over here, and you're going to run a much more expensive product over here for positions 31 through 70, and they will pay even more for 71 through 150 or whatever. <laughs> and, and, but it's not rational, right? And people don't, and people, because the moment you make that decision, so you as an allocator say, I'm going to buy the ETF because it's cheaper. And if that does worse than the mutual fund, you could have, well, it's your fault. You made a mistake. But it, it really seems to be more of a case of, is this case market segmentation in the sense of that there are dedicated ETF investors who have to invest in ETF structures and are willing to accept that maybe the, the product isn't perfect, but I mean it's not our, maybe it's not the manager's best product, uh, but 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 the, the the benefit of it being in an ETF structure outweighs that. Is is that is that how you see that kind of ETF marketplace? I, I think so. And look, I think I think also the ETF. So that, I mean, look, that's our focus, right? That's why we did it an ETF. Is is you know my job is I've got to convince you know Manishel, Pimco, etc. Their their job is to walk in and explain how why they're better than the last guy who just came in, right? They have they have an audience on the other side who has statistical wiring in their brain. They love the strategy. The question is who they're going to invest with and how much. The the hedge funds in ETF. Is 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 almost a derogatory expression. Like anybody who in the ETF world who said, "I am going to get out of my S and P five hundred and X Y Z, you know, bond allocation in order to invest in something that sounds cool," is regretting it years later. So there's a huge bias against against doing it. And by the way, the ethos of people on the ETF side, right? If you have gone, if you have, if you've gone up the climbed up the rungs of a firm that builds ETF-based model portfolios, you haven't had to build the skill set to be able to evaluate MAN, AQR, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because there have been no good options for you to do so. So you're, you're in general, people don't know what futures contracts are. They assume futures contracts go to zero. We got asked a question in due diligence about um, you know, what if, I guess we were short the two-year treasury, and, and the due diligence question that came back was, uh, what is what if the two-year treasury goes to zero, right? And I mean, well, do you mean if if the price goes to zero, we're 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 rich? <laughs> if, if if the yield goes to zero overnight, it's a huge problem. But we're probably you know using whatever we have left to buy bottled water and head into the woods. But but it just it just shows you that there this this education side of it that we we've, we've we've gone through years and years ago on the U.S. mutual fund side. In large part, I think I think Europe is going through it now, but. On a somewhat with it, in a somewhat delayed sense, but but it's not you know people think cheaper is easier or obvious. It's not because if you go cheaper and it doesn't do as well, you can get blamed. The whole the whole fund selection business is is, is what's the scenario when I get blamed for making a bad call? 
you know, and so if you, you know, if you buy the ETF and the ETF goes down 30, but the other one is down, but the mutual fund is down eight, that's a huge problem. So, I, so I'm sort of curious about the higher vol of the ETF as to whether that's of what that's you know factoring into their thinking. And I mean, I have heard the argument made that you know active ETFs are are you know going to be the big growth uh, going forward, and, and obviously all of these are active ETFs. You know, in 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 um, passive ETFs, obviously being more just more index products. I mean, why is that? Can you explain? Like, why do people say that active ETFs are going to displace mutual funds again? Is it just ease of use or is there a tax or is there more structural reasons for people suggesting that oh well look part of it is it's super boring to cover the 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 slow undulations of the asset management business so people describe things with great hyperbole i mean i mean i mean mean, come on you know there's what i don't know 20 trillion dollars of active mutual funds and you know a couple hundred billion of i mean it's 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 not even in, in in the same in the same category, and by the way, there have been a lot of false positives, and people thought active ETFs were going to take take off years ago, and they didn't. Um, it, it's only it's only it was you know Arc kind of broke the mold on the disruptive tech side, uh, JP Morgan, and a handful of other guys who've done these outcome oriented products um, have have been breaking the mold. One thing that ETFs do have that is first of all, there's at least in the U.S. there's no tax efficiency. There's no reason why you would necessarily want to do it in an ETF for versus mutual fund. Some guys really like the transparency. Um, and so we, in a sense, I don't know, maybe 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 got lucky or, or, or something in that because our portfolio is simple, if you look at our portfolio in the morning and then you look at your Bloomberg t- terminal at two o'clock, you're going to have a very good intuitive feel as to whether we're up or down. Um, the positions that we have are going to look pretty obvious to you. You know, I mean, if if the yen is going down, we're probably short the yen. If crude oil is going up, we're probably long crude oil. And so how people end up using that with a lot of these things, it's a it's a tool that you can use badly. You know, you can if you decide and this goes back to the timing issue. If you say, um, you know, oh, these guys are we're not. But if you, you know, like in 2022, if you said these guys are short equities and I think the market's going to fall apart in, in, in the next month and, and therefore I'm going to add this as an allocation. My regular issue is first of all, don't do it um, because our positions today might change. But but rather, I think it's a lot of just the comfort that people have in being able to see it. They feel like there's it's less likely that they'll have these blowups. Now, when I look at I glance really briefly at, at Man and and uh, you know KMLM, uh, Matt Lucas has a, has a uh, what I think is actually very good good uh, more index. It's it's an index based product, but it's their index, so it's this kind of circular thing um it's like it's like i have an index of my own stock picking and and so but the the, the portfolios are more complicated and and i think there's just sort of a mathematical limit where you can look at a portfolio and feel like you have an intuitive feel for it without having to say you know okay well that's where they are on oil but what about natural gas and what about this and what about that and is that transparency just from that perspective the value of it just said oh we know if it's going to be up or down when when we look at it later on that day or is are people kind of using the the transparency of positions to feed into their overall portfolios and and then being more tactical from that perspective would you say here's where i've seen people use it well so i and i always tell people the biggest mistake you make in managed futures is going to zero right is that is that in june of this year you decide that the great inflation trade is over or may or whatever inflation trade is over everyone had a bad first quarter um and and you know and and we're getting out how do you get back in? 
right? How do you get back in? Well, then it goes up 5%. So you get more confident. Okay. But now have you missed it? Now, what if you're the guy who buys it up 5% and then it reverses and goes right back down? Now you've compounded your problem. So what happens is when people get out, they kind of secretly hope the space doesn't do well to validate their decision to get out of it. And, and they, they won't get back in, they'll fight getting back in to the nail. Um, because there's, it's, you know, I've seen people do this with, with, with stock and bond portfolios where they're like, you know, we're terrified of what's going to happen in the economy, sell all of our stocks. Good luck getting back in. You'll be tortured for two years trying to figure out what the right moment is. But where I have seen it useful is in the following way. Um, underwriting funds is, is time consuming, right? It takes a while to get comfortable with it. You've got to go through various. So, so you're an investment advisor and you know, it's early 2022 and you've got, whether you intended to or not, you've got a low rates bet across your portfolio. You are way overweight tech stocks because they've done better than everything else. You are long all of these bonds under the assumption that rates are never going to go up again. And so now you start to get nervous. It is extremely hard for that person for the same reason, for the person to say, I'm tearing up my playbook because of an inflation print that comes out in, in January, or I think the Ukraine war is going to drive commodity prices through the roof for the next 10 years. Like those big macro calls, if you get it wrong, you're out of business. And so how do you address it? One thing you can do is you can say, well, and this is what people do practically is they say, well, I've got a 40, you know, I've got a 60, 40 portfolio. I'm going to, uh, 58 and 38, and I'm going to 4% cash right now until I wait till things better. So one guy that I know did something really clever and he said, I can't really get out of my bonds because if I get out of my bonds, it's even though I'm worried about it. What if I'm wrong and sort of raise the issues? He said, but I've got this ETF. If I can see the positions this morning, they are yeah. short so across, bonds, across yeah. the treasury curve. Yeah. You know, they're long commodities. They are, um, or they're, you know, we were long uh, crude oil at the time in the first quarter of last year. And so he said, look, I, and I have it in my portfolio anyway. So just at the margin, I can take it from five to 10 and essentially de-risk part of the other 90% of my portfolio without going to cash without it's sort of a, and, and that's where, you know, you've, you've got to be playing at an A level to do that. You know, this is, this is not a do it your home kind of thing. Cause it's got, you've got to really understand the dynamics of, of, of managing it. But that's the, um, that's the power of, of, of the visibility of the underlying portfolio. Okay. So it sounds like you see the ETF space here to stay in terms of managed futures and, and trend, but obviously you've just been back from, from Europe and, um, I, I think it's probably, is it fair to say the usage market and, and, and that kind of liquid alternative space in Europe for, for want of a better expression has been slower to evolve. What's your sense on, on trend managed features within, within the usage category? <laughs> so I wish I knew. Uh, so, so look, my, if I have one skill set, okay, it is a dogged pursuit of disparate pieces of information and then forming some sort of a mosaic and then, and then, and then testing whether that's reasonable or not. Uh, it is so hard to do that in Europe because, you know, as the more I learn about Europe, the more I realize that, that, that using the Spanish private banking market in the same sentence as the wealth management market in the UK and the, you know, XYZ market in Germany. I mean, these are just, well, you know, say like they're different countries. They really are like, and so, so, so when we talk about usage, I mean, at least in the U S I can draw analogies between Texas, California, and New York, even if not on, maybe not on political grounds, I can draw it on, on, you know, an economic and industry structure grounds. Um, 
my general observations about Europe is that they're pushing toward moving mo to model portfolios, but they're still learning and digesting the lessons that we went through a decade ago in the US. So, so again, AQR, phenomenal example, right? People assumed AQR could do, could, do, could do no wrong. It was their favorite thing to own. It was the obvious allocation. It did worse than they expected. Maybe not that what Asnes or those guys would say was sort of a normal spectrum of outcomes. And then they struggled with it for years and how to explain it. And did it mean that they were bad allocators? And how did they, and then Europe, I think, is still, um, it feels more like a story-driven market to me. So what I see is among the more statistically inclined guys who are building model portfolios, who are, you know, kind of more sophisticated guys doing fund selection, we completely see eye to eye on the benefit of trends, managed futures, et cetera, as an asset class. Getting it from there into the portfolio with a language where the advisor who actually talks to the client and where it ends up in their portfolio, that I think is more of a struggle in, in Europe than it is. Um, and, I, and I think part of it is that in Europe, Europe's response to the hedge fund crises of the GFC was a bit different. There was much more fraud. Like European fund of funds were sometimes up to their gills in Madoff. It was a it was a 10-year hangover from that. So on the one hand, a lot of firms jettisoned the idea of investing in hedge funds at all. But those that do, for reasons a little bit paradoxical, I'm not sure I understand why, still think you should only invest in the hedge funds themselves. So and, and, and part of it is that, is that usage constraints are a little bit trickier. So like if you look at like PIMCO's mutual fund um, uh, versus its usage fund, you know, you've, you've got a four-legged horse and a three-legged horse. No. So no, no commodities, yeah. <laughs> well, no commodities, right? Yeah, and yeah. When, when we first started doing it in 2015, uh, uh, in a usage fund, sort of a multi-strat multi product, again, we didn't use commodities. Um, our, our entry back into it is usage. So again, the market has evolved where it's easier now to use commodities. What is that? But it's still complicated and expensive. So I, th I think there's this sort of combination of the messaging, um, the the belief that usage funds are, by definition, you're, you're not going to have a great experience investing in usage funds. A lot of them are smaller, and and scale becomes a real problem. If you've got a you know if, if you're a multi billion dollar investment advisor in the UK. And you've got a 20% limit on how much you can own, and you can only put 80 to 100 million. It sounds like a lot to us, but but for them, it can be hugely problematic because it doesn't even move the needle in your portfolio. So um, so like the stories, it's, it's something that's easier to invest in the large global macro fund um, than it is in managed futures. Hey, and I was so still, figure, still figuring it out, but uh, uh, yeah, still figuring it out. And within Europe, there is an you can have a usage ETF. Is not correct as well? But you, you, with your product, it's 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 a usage as opposed we're, to we're straight ETF. old fashioned uses. Yeah. So oh, okay. so you know, ETF. One of the great irritations of ETFs is is that people. I mean, usage funds and mutual funds are just easier, and that if somebody wants to put five million dollars into it, you know, so somebody says the NAV at four p.m. was thirty dollars and. You know, and 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 you, and you give the money and you get it back at NAV. The, the complication of ETFs, even under easy circumstances, is that you're buying these things in the market, and so people have this. You know, a lot of the people who are doing making the allocation decisions are not really traders. 
you know, they're not thinking about like, oh, we're going to work the order and my God, you know, who nobody puts in a limit order. I mean, nobody puts in a market order at, you know, 3.58 PM on, on Christmas Eve. Um, and so we, um, when we looked at, again, the architecture of the European market, we could see that people were having struggles with this depth of the liquidity, the ease of trading. And it's hard enough to explain managed futures and why people should have it without having to go down and, you know, adding complications on, on the liquidity side. We had, it was a real issue for us in the U S until, until last year when, when things kind of coalesced and came together. Okay, so maybe wrapping all of that up together and also bringing in the perspective of kind of fee and fee structure. So how do you see that? What do you think the landscape looks like over the next number of years between ETFs, you know, mutual fund or usage, you know, private placement funds? Yeah, you know, how do you think investors and allocators will view all of those distinct categories and, and, be, and, and it gives reasonable fees in each case? Yeah, I think it'll be all over the map. Um, and, and I mean, in, institutional investors... Um, are very, very much I, a lot. Of, I should say a lot of institutional investors are of the view that one of the ways they can drive value on the allocation side is by beating up people on fees. No question. And so I go to a large allocator in the UK and they look at something like the net of fee returns of the stock and CTA index, which is generally after kind of the normal headline fees. Um, and they think, you know, well, we'll beat that just by swinging a big bat. The, I think there will be, people will push toward incentive fees as opposed to they'll, they'll drop their management fees and load up on incentive fees. Uh, and by the way, you, you cannot do that in the US. I'll come back to that in a sec. But in Europe, what you'll see are more usage funds with very, very low management fees, but incentive fees. And, and it's, and it's a bizarre quirk that when in the wealth management business, which tends to be very fee sensitive. Um, people will tell you what the management fee is, what the headline management fee is on your client report or when they calculate your all-in costs. But whenever there's a performance fee, it's like an asterisk. Well, we can't calculate it today, but it's going to be, you know, something. Um, and there's a psychological thing is that people feel like they're, if they're making money when we're making money, it's okay. Um, they hate it when they're making money and we're not. Uh, in the U.S., you can't do that. So the, the, you, you basically, you cannot have incentive fees in U.S. mutual funds or ETFs. So you'll see more competition probably on the management fee side over time, if it follows other parts of the business. Um, but that, if that happens, it's going to happen in a world where you're getting a BlackRock is coming in and BlackRock is turning their models and making managed futures a 2% allocation across it. Vanguard's doing the same thing, in which case everyone is going to be making so much more money on size than they than they are on on incremental dollars. At least that look, that's our bet, basically. And I mean, the question that does come up then in relation to that is capacity. I mean, is that a concern if we move to that kind of world where where, where kids get more widely embraced and and as you say, people are managing larger amounts at at, at, at a smaller margin? See, I don't think so. Okay, and there and you, you guys are going to have people on this who are going to be more you know, probably granular in the weeds on this than I am. You know, if, if $100 billion comes into the space and everybody decides that heating oil is their favorite position, okay, right, that's, I get, that's not, that's not a good thing. And by the way, if they're all doing it in ETFs, then there's going to be an entire industry that's going to sp spring up to front run these guys. Uh, if they can figure out what, you know, basically they'll, they'll recreate their model. This is what happened in the commodity space in the 2000s. Um, yeah, so, but again, I mean, the, the way we look at it, 
and it's just a sort of a different construct is, is, is we think 70 or hundred instruments, but whatever, they're only going up, they're only going up or down or sideways. Right. And so, and when they do it, they tend to move in clusters. I don't think volatility in the markets is going away. I mean, in, in a sense, I, I do think it, that the Fed put was this pernicious force. You couldn't exactly put, you couldn't figure out why it was for t- to two decimal places, but it was this pernicious force for trend following because they didn't want things to trend too far <laughs> in either direction. And and how that played out is obviously very subtle. So when you look at like what was driving returns last year, it was all interest rates were moving. You know, the dollar was going up against pretty much every currency. Uh, you know, all commodities were going up for a period of time. Equities going to be going up or down. So I still think managed futures is a drop in the bucket. And, and, and I think, but I think also the, um, by the way, man on their, uh, on their ETF thing has this great little three minute video on trend. And, and we don't want to talk about kind of the drivers of trend. And I actually, I think it's, a, I think it's slightly different. And I think it's because I spend so much time with allocators and my, my view on the reason alpha generation in trend strategies is so lumpy, but massively punctuated in a year like 2022 is because even if everybody knows that the world is changing fast, they need to change their portfolios. They're still not going to because there are always false positives that the world is, is about to change. And, and, and if you, and if you, if you buy into it, you're out of business, you know, you de-risk and the markets go, don't, don't go down. So when you look at something like the inflation trade, to me, it played out in lockstep, which was, we start to see the evidence come back in early 2021, right? Druckenmiller comes out and says, it's, there's nothing in the data so far, but I can see these different things converging. So I'm assigning a higher probability than zero. He goes out, he shorts treasuries, he goes, buys commodities. I think he bought, bought also bought EM, which I don't think worked. And then the evidence starts to come back. But every allocator who had built their portfolios, who'd, who'd, who'd had success by being in this low rates world, they cannot move until the evidence is so blindingly obvious and everybody is moving in lockstep with them. And as the world moves more and more and more and more and more toward model portfolios and long-term asset allocation decisions, which is the right thing to do most of the time, then the need for something that is nimble totally indifferent if it, that it was long one position now and it's you know that it, that, that 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 can flip back and forth without fear of being embarrassed in front of its clients I, I, can you imagine if this if these were discretionary macro traders you'd be like you're insane you know like you're this emotional crazy person who's just following what the latest trend is but it turns out it works really well and part of the reason it works really well is because even if they agree with you they can't put on the trade and 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 that's and so I don't I don't think it's going away. I think it's I think that's why twenty twenty two happened. Very good. Well, we've run out of time more or less. I just one thing I wanted to get your your perspective on before we wrapped up. The FT had a, an interesting article just out today called "The Alpha of Ugliness," and it says, "But beauty gets the flows," highlighting apparently some research suggesting that uh, less attractive um, fund managers, hedge fund managers, are better, but but more attractive are are, are obviously better at raising assets. So, uh, any comment on that? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, what it clear we, thank you for sending it over. We read it with great interest and we're, I'm immediately trying to create an AI version of myself. So, 
<laughs> let's grow the hair back. <laughs> let's, let's, you know, I'd be, I'd, I'd like to, wouldn't, wouldn't I be a little less pink? Thank you very much. Um, so I, I, I think we've done okay on the, uh, on the return side, but, uh, look, I think, I think there's a, um, uh, I, you know, I, I'm a huge skeptic of a lot of these studies. Uh, you know, when they say we've isolated for this factor, <sighs> okay, sure. But on, on the other hand, I can tell you, there's a ton of evidence in business that, that, that looks do matter a great deal. Uh, whether you can make the inverse and say that people who are, uh, like there used to be this running joke about private equity titans as to why they were so small. Yeah, you know, I mean, they were the average height of the great private equity titans was, you know, was was well below that of of a median person, and the assumption was like. You know, they've got short man's complex and therefore they're all going to be billionaires. Okay, maybe. I mean, but, you know, on the other hand, uh, um, <laughs> I don't know. They weren't spending their time playing football and, you know. Exactly. Well, that's one that uh, a debate I'm sure will rumble on. Uh, so, Andrew, thanks very much for joining us uh, today. It's been been great fun speaking. My great pleasure as always. Thank you so much. Not at all. So, from all of us here at Top Traders Unplugged, we'll be back soon. So, stay tuned and take care. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.